You are looking live. I don't believe what I just saw. It is possible. There are no flags on the field. It's a miracle. From a university that's mentally already on spring break, it's the 252. I'm Chris Garrett. I'm Chris Moore. And I'm Sam Mulberry. Are you guys? So we we work at Bethel University. I'm a history professor. Sam uh, teaches history. Chris is in political science. We have spring break technically starting like at 5 p.m. on Friday. It's Wednesday, and I feel everyone already going on spring break. Is that fair? Yeah, I feel like like it's like a gradation, and we just get we get sort of darker and darker as we go. And it's partly <laughs> it's related to black. That's, That's right. grim. Well, I think it's partly related to sports. We have, as always, teams traveling for spring and break and music. Right. But yep. like this year, because of some scheduling quirks, like the baseball guys are leaving tonight. Right. And it makes everyone feel a little bit like spring break has uh, crept into uh, existence earlier than usual. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, this week, what's happening on the 252? Well, we've got another guest interview. We're happy to welcome Paul Putz from Sci College in Pennsylvania. Paul runs a blog called Sportianity, and he's going to explain what that is. Could it's you say that just a little bit slower? Sportianity. Sportianity. Yeah. So we'll explain the origins of this. It comes from a 1976 Sports Illustrated series. And so we'll talk about the 70s, but also today, and especially evangelicalism and sports. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we've got uh, some news to get to. Sam, do we have a breaking news sounder? Uh, we don't, but... All right, there we go. That was terrible. No, we... Yours was better. I'm going to clip that out, and we'll use that every time. Okay. So as some of you probably know, yesterday news broke that the FBI has been engaged in a case that they codenamed, to their credit, Operation Varsity Blues. This is... An admission scandal. Paging Allie it's actually, Technically, I think mail fraud is, are the charges, but it's an admission scandal involving some elite colleges, some very wealthy people, including some reflecting the people. priorities of American culture, the ones who got named, a couple of uh, TV stars of your Felicity mm-hmm. Huffman and Lori Laughlin. Yep. Uh, and uh, so, I mean, in short, if you haven't heard about this, um, <clears throat> there's a company that was arranging essentially fraudulent admission to some of the leading universities in this nation, including my graduate alma mater, uh, where these people paid enormous amounts of money. Up to half a million dollars. Oh, more than that. Do you see the 1.2 million? We'll talk about that. Yeah. So there are a couple of ways this worked. One involved falsifying uh, SAT, ECT scores. A couple of high school employees were caught up. The one I want to talk about, because this is the 252 and we do the history of sports, mm-hmm. is the role of coaches in sports. So... Uh, among the defendants named in this in this uh, allegation are nine coaches. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't think it's news to us that there's some shady things that happen with recruiting in Division One college athletics. Right. The schools involved here, you know, include USC, UCLA, and then some other schools that we don't normally talk about. But when we've talked about this, we've been talking about football and basketball, right? Those are the two big money sports right. we've discussed a lot. Just last week, we talked about amateurism, March Madness. Here, here, is, here are the coaches involved. Uh, the tennis coach at Georgetown okay. University. Yep. Uh, the men's soccer coach at UCLA. Okay. The women's volleyball coach at Wake Forest. At USC, the water polo and women's soccer coach. 
Is it the same position? Those are different positions. Okay, good. Plus, <laughs> an, plus an associate athletic director. Okay. And at Yale University, the women's soccer coach who took a bribe of at least $400,000 to admit yep. a not competitive student whose parents were willing to pay $1.2 million for this scam. Yeah. So, so it's interesting, right? So the way this worked basically was there's, um, and this is this is a um, a feature of high level college um, admissions. But there are people who you can employ as an admissions coach, yes, who will take money from your parents, who will prep you for standardized tests, who will prep your applications, who will buff up your resumes, get you in the right extracurricular activities, and hopefully get you into the college of your dreams. Mm-hmm. In this case, uh, the coll- this this high profile uh, admissions coach was instead just a conduit for bribery. It also photoshopped images of people playing <laughs> or, sports they didn't right. actually play. Or like they played, but they were not like going to be elite college athletes. Right. But what's striking about this is these are the Olympic sports, right? I mean, these are sports that usually cost schools money. They're not mm-hmm. high profile. I mean, water polo, diving, tennis, volleyball. Um, and so if you're interested in following up, there's a good story by Ruth Graham at uh, Slate. Ruth Graham is a Wheaton grad who normally writes about religion. But she kind of, it was really more like kind of noting an aspect that Slate had covered before, which is that it is very common for schools like this to set aside admission spots for athletes. And these are schools like the Ivies don't give athletic scholarships, right? And the spots often go to, for lack of a better phrase, dumb, rich white kids. Mm -hmm. I mean, like if you look at the racial makeup of these sports, like uh, another one that was involved, I think, was crew, was rowing, Mm -hmm. uh, but like water polo. I mean, these are overwhelmingly white sports. And they're at schools where uh, this often happens. So, for example, the Harvard Crimson, the student newspaper, ran a survey last year. And they found that a quarter of recruited athletes at Harvard were from families whose household income was at least half a million dollars. Hmm. So these are not student athletes who are only able to get access to higher education because of scholarships. And we talked last week about whether that's even sufficient or not. These are students who could not meet the academic criteria and yet, colleges like this, in order to keep these different programs going, already are setting aside, you know, dozens, if not more, spots for athletes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's clear, that, I mean, a lot of these sports, you already have to be very affluent because it involves private coaching, access to facilities, equipment, um, and now apparently access or ability to bribe people right. as well. And so it's an interesting it's yet another rock to turn over in college athletics that is kind of unrelated to the other rocks we've been turning over. But so the, col- the college's reactions to this have basically been, I'm shocked, shocked there's gambling in this establishment. <laughs> right. uh, but is, 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 what, is what's happening here is what Graham is reporting basically that schools are, use, are basically willing to um, admit under competitive athletes, poor, uh, or not poor, uh, not financially poor, but weaker athletes as a way to stash high paying students into their schools? Well, this is what I, is unclear. And so I think what she is suggesting is this bear is for the reporting, right? I mean, so there could be two different things. There's the kind of monetizing of this, right? Mm-hmm. This is essentially fundraising under the guise of elite admissions. Right. Um, and then there's the we need athletes to make all these sports run, mm-hmm. and they can't actually cut the muster with GPA, SAT, ACT requirements, and so we're going to look the other way. Um, and or maybe these are legacy admissions, which is the other feature right. of most of these schools, that children of high-profile alumni have different requirements. Um, as someone mm-hmm. who is a teaching fellow at Yale in general terms, I would say it just this. like. You'd imagine, like, this is – these are the best and the brightest, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this, is, this is our Oxbridge system. 
there is exactly the same kind of distribution of academic abilities that I see at Bethel, that I saw at Southern Connecticut State, you know, mm. and, and there are various reasons for that. But I always assumed probably had to do with legacies and sports. It was my generalized unfair stereotype, or maybe not unfair stereotype. Mm. Um, whereas, like, at local state university, I had a couple of students at Southern Connecticut State who very easily would have thrived in the seminars that I was teaing at Yale, but, of course, they had no access to Yale. Right. right? And so this feeds larger kind of national conversations about white privilege, mm -hmm. um, kind of populist backlash against economic inequality, and, and rightly so. I, I, I mean, I like I know what you mean, Chris. Like, there's a kind of like, well, of course, we knew this is going on. People make big donations to get their their kids sure. into school, but like to see it so um, <laughs> just like blatantly fraudulent is mm -hmm. is still kind of bracing, like as jaundiced as we are. Um, and so I, I think the story has legs. This is, this, it has legs and it's, it has legs for on two levels. One, there's there's the overall culture that's, that elite schools are participating in and the fact that uh, there are hundreds if not thousands of, of easily qualified applicants for every open spot mm -hmm. at an Ivy League school. And so what Ivies can do is choose from all kinds of students who are likely to be extremely successful in their mm -hmm. programs but then you have these legacy admits. You have to run athletic teams. You have to, uh, and maybe you have to appease certain kinds of uh, potentially powerful parents and donors and those sorts of things. But but the other interesting question is, with all of that in mind, uh, some of these parents still felt like they had to go to enormous and illicit lengths yep. to try to get their students admitted. Uh, for the amount of money that um, apparently Felicity Huffman and, and, mm -hmm. and others uh, com committed to this this fraud, uh, they could have endowed a chair at Yale oh, yeah. or or somewhere else, and presumably well, right leverage that at a school that doesn't already have an endowment the size of a small country. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, this is what, as a Yale alum, what aggravates me so much about is this is so unnecessary. Right? These are schools that already have, are swimming in wealth. I mean, yes. They are running out of new things to endow and name after people. I mean, like. They probably generate more just in the interest than our actual principle is for endowment for our mm -hmm. school, right? Um, they are ginning up these numbers of getting applicants and rejecting perfectly qualified applicants. Yes. I'm angry here because I was waitlisted by Harvard as part of this process. <laughs> because, like, they want to be able to say we only accept 2% of applicants, yeah. right? It actually helps their reputation, which yeah. is another part. I mean, it's, it, it taps into so many messes with higher education slash mm -hmm. American society more broadly. Except there is the kernel of truth that if you do go to one of these schools, it is a guarantee. I mean, it is a golden ticket, right? It is very hard to go to an Ivy League school and not parlay that into a pretty good paying job. And you can even do something like major in history or political science <gasps> while you're there, which is why those programs are actually growing when all the rest of us are struggling for enrollment. Right? Well, there's also, well, there's also the whole conversation that the elites still take liberal arts classes. And why, and why that's the case. And well, that's another and we should. So yeah. my big takeaway from this is okay, that there's sorry. actually somebody clearly out there that I could pay to falsify, quote, unquote, evidence that I finished ninth in the 1995 high school dunk contest. Yes. Mm -hmm. I'd like to, I don't know what it would cost, but I'd like to have that, quote, unquote, evidence. Okay. Let's move on to a second story <laughs> that's not quite as fresh. This is like five or six days old. But last Friday on International Women's Day, all 28 members of the U.S. women's national soccer team sued the U.S. Soccer Federation for gender discrimination. Yes. And this had to do with a few things, including working conditions, access to doctors, mm -hmm. just the nature of the schedule, the practices. Uh, mostly had to do with equity of pay. And this is not a new story. Um, 
Well, I, I looked this up earlier to get right. In 2016, five star players, including Hope Solo, who mm-hmm. the goalies fire, filed her own lawsuit, I think, against U.S. Uh, soccer, uh, filed a complaint with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Um, in 2017, then, there was a collective bargaining round to try to redress some of the concerns. And here, two years later, with the Women's World Cup in France, three months away, mm-hmm. a very high-profile lawsuit with Alex Morgan and Megan Rapinoe and Carly Lloyd going on national morning talk shows to talk about it. Uh, Chris and Sam, I, I think you've been following this. Like, what, I mean, is there justice to this complaint? Well, is there inequity in pay? As I was looking at it, I mean, there's there's a couple sets of issues. I mean, if you're looking at, at equity between the men's national team and the women's national team. I mean, part of where this the problem comes from is that there, there's two different collective bargaining agreements. Mm-hmm. There's one for the men and one for the women. Yep. And in the men's collective bargaining agreement, um, they've basically built it so that they can, uh, instead of getting a salary, they can sort of bet on themselves right. and how their participation will pay them. But that's because they're also betting on a system which has way more money in it. So mm-hmm. they don't need to do as well. Um, so where in the women's uh, collective bargaining agreement, they have a, a, a base salary, but they don't get as much in terms of bonuses and things like that. Now, the so, bonuses, this is coming from U.S. soccer? Because I thought there also are FIFA bonuses, right? There are. Right? Both those things, that. right. Okay. So so to give an example of the disparity between this. So in the, the – um, and I'm going to use the 14-15 World Cups. The men's mm-hmm. is in 14, mm-hmm. women's is in 15. In the men's World Cup, uh, the men reached the uh, the U.S. men reached the round of 16. So the team shared a nine million dollar bonus for reaching the round of 16. The women won the 2015 Cup and they shared two million dollars. Uh-huh. Mm. So it's harder to bet on yourself when the money's not out there. So the team that won the men's World Cups, these are FIFA bonuses. Right. Um, they uh, they got they sh- shared 35 million dollars. So. The, uh, the the men's World Cup is valued around uh, revenues around four billion dollars. The women's I'm blanking on the number. It's somewhere between two hundred and four hundred million dollars. Mm-hmm. So it's far less in terms of that. So that those are the things that are sort of working against this argument. Now things that are maybe working for it, you could say, well, we let the market decide, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if do you know what the highest rated men's soccer game in terms of American TV viewers is? Would just would you okay? It is the it is the 2014 World Cup fi- men's World Cup final between Germany and Argentina. Right? Yep. So the U.S. didn't play in that, but you could argue that's a better game than if the than the, if the U.S. was in it. Yep. You have sort of peak Messi. You have this sure. dominant German team. So that was uh, 26.5 million viewers. A year later, the women's World Cup final, in terms of U.S. ratings, had 26.7 million viewers. So it's actually the highest rated uh, in the U.S. soccer game ever on television. It's a women's game. It's a women's game. And ratings means – so someone's making a lot of money off that, and it's not – going in that Well, I, I couldn't find updated numbers, but I was reading New York Times coverage. And in 2016, they done kind of an explainer bit about the complexity of pay disparities. And one thing they pointed out is, at least in 2016, when this EEOC complaint was filed, um, the men's team actually lost money for the year. Now, it was like, it was midway through the World Cup cycle. Like, it wasn't, mm-hmm. But the women's team, a year removed from the world, they'd actually brought in a million dollars. It was actually profitable. Partly because they had done a victory tour. Mm-hmm. I right. will say, as I've looked at more numbers like that, that's that's probably more of an anomaly. Okay. I mean, if you're looking at especially a World Cup year where you're getting no, but like what I, I guess what I want to say yeah. is it's maybe not as out of whack as you would assume we would see in other like sure. you know um, NBA versus WNBA, right? right? Like, because I, I, I think there is, tr- I mean, what the viewership numbers you cited point to 
is there's an enormous market for women's soccer. Yes. Mm-hmm. And like TV rights, you could see this being renegotiated mm-hmm. yep. and, and leveling. Yep. TV rights and attendance. And, I mean, and, and, you know, part of the justice issue in this is you can say, again, well, okay, well, you let the market decide. And I said the Men's World Cup is $4 billion, The women's is 200 and, or two to 400, or two to 400 million. Um, but the Men's World Cup has been around since 1930. The women's, first Women's World Cup is 1991. Now, I'm mm-hmm. guessing, Chris, we were talking last year about or last week about sort of how big of an industry sports is. I'm guessing sports has had a chance to grow as an industry I believe from 1930 <laughs> to well, 1990. Well, some numbers in the second. Yeah, so, like, yeah. so I mean, there, there is – it's one of those things where you – it's easy to make the argument that, well, you let the market decide if you're already in a position where the market's absolutely on your side and there's mm-hmm. all this. So in terms of – if and I, then I think you think about what is the purpose of the U.S. – SF, the United States Soccer Federation. Right. It's a nonprofit organization, uh, 501c3. I don't exactly know what that means, but I know a little bit about what that means. Yep. Their purpose is to promote the growth of soccer. That's men's soccer, women's yep. soccer, Paralympic soccer, soccer mm-hmm. youth soccer, all these things. If that's their mission, not to sort of figure out how to collect and distribute money, you'd think that wherever the money was coming in, it would be distributing it uh, more equitably and, and, um, and, and if you're going to invest in growth, why wouldn't you invest in growth in the thing that is both most successful and most popular in this country? So one other question I had about, like, how free are these labor markets, right? Like, to what extent could women on the USWNT say, forget this, uh, Russia is offering me a better deal, I'm going to get Russian citizens? Because we have had, like, basketball players do this in right, the Olympics, sure. right? I mean, and I know there are some transfers um, in the men's game. I guess I don't know the women's game. But, like, yeah. To what extent could the market correct in that? I don't. I don't know how citizenship works with national teams. I don't know if you have to. I mean, I think you have to be able to trace. Don't you have to trace lineage back? Which, well, I didn't. Yeah. I yeah I, so, so I think. I think that that. Are that's you talking a piece of about it. non-national teams, sort of like club teams? No, I'm talking about national, national teams because this yeah. this yeah. is totally setting aside what they get paid by whatever right. clubs they're doing. At and least by Olympic standards, you have to be able to establish a long-standing national relation, uh, citizenship or okay. call. Yeah, and I believe. I believe it's it's. Maybe not the same standards, but but pretty high standards. Plus, there's the idea of should one have to right. renounce no, one's citizenship? I, I, I don't think it's fair. I'm right. just saying, like, could that become the next club out of the bay? What know, you like, would need, what mm-hmm. you would need to find, is a nation that was interested in uh, have in in paying an absolute premium to have the the most dominant women's soccer team. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, so that's what you need not to unimaginable. find. Right. And and but then you're probably getting tied into some countries <laughs> that are maybe you're not excited about. As well, yeah. I mean, most, let me can sorry, ask Chris. this. So there's, um, we we we've had a conversation about women's basketball in the past in this mm-hmm. regard. So we know there are some other countries besides the United States that pay women better than the WNBA plays right. right now. Is that the case for soccer? Do we know that there are other landing places where women can? I don't make have more a clear sense of that. I mean, I would I would assume that. I don't know. I don't. Well, know. I mean, most. Well, I'd say like. Women's soccer as a professional league does not seem to my very <laughs> limited job to have taken off, right, in this country. Mm-hmm. And this there country are other sure. options. Like when we were – when Sam and I were in London this past January, we went to a West Ham game. I think there's a West Ham women's team. There's a women's yes. premiership yes. table <laughs> as well. Correct. And often it kind of is co-owned by the same clubs. Um, so I don't know. That would be a good – maybe that's something we should follow yeah. up for next time. But, uh, I mean, it is interesting, like, as we continue to think through this future course, like – 
a theme I think we kind of knew we would talk about, but maybe has really bubbled the surface almost every episode is this notion of like the value of athletic labor. Mm-hmm. And then the related but maybe separate question of like the justice of this mm-hmm. and the yep. nature of how collective bargaining needs to work. Well, and, and, and I, I mean, the other justice part of this is the reason that there wasn't a Women's World Cup until 1991 is that women's sports and even in America didn't have value, weren't valued, weren't weren't um, weren't focused on. So those industries weren't allowed to develop. A- I mean, you get access to those types of things. What I think is interesting about this lawsuit and the other complaints is that another big issue for them has to do with where they play. So the women's U.S. national team, the best, mm-hmm. you know, arguably the best women's team in the world, has to sometimes play on artificial turf. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, where the U.S. men's team has never, never. played on artificial turf. Right. And there's lots of complaints about injury Injuries. and things like that. You know, and it, and then I mean the the counter argument is some folks in U.S. soccer say, well, artificial turf is the future of soccer. But then why is no one? Why are no men playing on it? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, Sam, you mentioned a question that came up last week, which was uh, I had pulled out some you know probably poorly sourced stats about what's the actual value of sports as an industry, mm-hmm. at least in this country. And you asked you know a really good historian question, which is how has this changed over time? So I did very little research over this week, and I can't do this for sports as an industry, but what I can point to is an online essay essay by Michael Halpert of University of Wisconsin-La Crosse, who's an economic historian. So this is at Economic Historical Association. And it's really, it's a nice kind of just survey of the economic history of baseball. And it touches on things like collective bargaining and unionization and free agency. But just a couple of numbers that he gave uh, that I thought I'd just to at least give you some sense of trend. So first of all, TV revenue. Hmm. And he gave both the nominal values, but also I'll quote you the real values. This is adjusted for inflation mm-hmm. and other factors. So when the first significant, I mean, like there actually have been rights, he points out, since the 1890s. Clubs would actually pay telegraph rights because you'd have these really? kind of automated hmm. scoreboards. And this actually, even before radio, you've got very you know, small numbers, but they actually were figuring this that out. That in and of itself is fascinating. Isn't that fascinating? Mm-hmm. Okay. But by the 60s, you've got national TV deals for the first time. So from about the mid-60s all the way to the late 70s, the range in real terms is about 125 to $185 million per year is the TV money that's coming from the networks. Um, there's a new deal done uh, with, uh, I think it's NBC and maybe ABC in the mid-'80s, that jumps mm-hmm. that to about half a billion. And then when ESPN enters the picture in the 90s, we're talking 800 to 900 million or so. Okay. And I don't think he goes further than that. But that gives you some sense of, like, from the mid-'60s to the 90s, it's going up by a factor of about five or so. Mm-hmm. Okay, the other one he gave is franchise value. And this actually goes back uh, deeper. In 1920, the average in real term adjusted for inflation franchise value of a major league team was $7 million. In 1950, it had more than doubled to $19 million. Mm-hmm. 30 years later, in 1980, it was $70 million. And by 2001, it was almost $300 million. Hmm. And so three things had driven that, he said. One is there were actually 14 sales of teams in the 1990s. Uh, number two, obviously, it was an era of expansion. Yep. And the big one is actually new stadium construction. And so he stopped in 2001, but I bet if you updated that another 18 or so years, we'd see another significant Absolutely, multiplication. Yeah. Well, this is anecdotal, but James Dolan, the owner of the New, uh, New York Knicks, is apparently willing to shop the team for about $4 billion. Right. That includes Madison Square Garden. Yep. 
Yeah, and like this doesn't even begin to approach like the value of NFL teams. Right. But yeah. so that I mean, like I think we kind of knew it's increased over time, but it at least gives you a sense of the magnitude of change uh, over time. So we'll put that up on our Facebook page along with a couple other things we've talked about. Uh, I think we need to update a few things from last week. Let's start with uh, worth the watch. Sam, we had three. Were they worth worth the watch? Uh, well, I said that you should watch the women's softball three game set between the number three Florida Gators and the number seven uh, Tennessee Lady Volunteers. Uh, Tennessee won the first two games, including shelling superstar Kelly Barnhill, sort of in a um, Clayton Kershaw (laughs) in the playoffs sort of thing. But (laughs) then on Sunday, Barnhill took the mound again for Florida, pitched, like Clayton Kershaw, a two-hit, 13-strikeout shutout to save one game from the series. I'm going to call that worth the watch. Okay. All right. Uh, uh, Chris Gertz said the Minnesota State High School League um, hockey tournament, uh, Dinah beat Eden Prairie (sighs) to win the the 2A title. St. Cloud Cathedral topped Greenway 5-2 to win the 1A title. Chris, you actually watched this. Was it worth the watch? Well, so I'll say the A game, which is the smaller schools relatively, was not in a super competitive game. It was interesting more because Greenway had been this kind of Cinderella. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so it was worth seeing for that. It was St. Cloud Cathedral's first championship. Uh, the double A title was absolutely, it was prime time. Like, I don't think people realize not just like the XL Energy Center was full, but like lots of people in Minnesota watch mm-hmm. Channel 45 to watch the high right. school tournament. Mm-hmm. It was the 75th anniversary tournament. So um, Eden Prairie was the underdog here. They actually were leading one nothing well into the third period. Then uh, Edina, the favorite, they've won double-digit championships, scored two goals in like 30 seconds. Um, but then Eden Prairie, a senior defenseman, hit and scored all year, scored his second goal of the state tournament to tie it up, went to overtime. And Edina won in overtime, and it was a third-line winger, scored two goals in the game. Like, I've never seen someone, wow. an athlete like that excited, like didn't know what to do with himself. And so, like, it's hard to root for either of these hyper-affluent suburbs, especially Edina. <laughs> But for for that kid's sake, it was, it was definitely exciting to see. So sure. I'll say worth All it. right. And then Chris Moore said that we should watch the Arnold Palmer oh. Invitational at Bay Hill in Orlando. Mm. Uh, mm. He mentioned how many times Tiger had won this. Tiger withdrew Eight due times. to injury. Yeah. But uh, Matthew Fitzpatrick entered Sunday at 9-under and shot a 1-under 71 to drop his score to 10-under. But Francisco Molinari entered Sunday 4-under, shot an 8-under 64 wow. to pass Boom. him and win the tournament at 12-under. That's a pretty exciting That's Sunday. Exciting. So I'm going to yeah. give that a worth the watch. Yeah, I'm. I hope Tiger can get his get his back straight before the before some majors. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Okay. The other thing to update is we had a Mount Rushmore vote happening last week. It was about college basketball this time. If you didn't listen last week, we had done kind of a draft. We each had like four people, and then our friend Sarah Shady dropped four of ours. Eviscerated my picks. Yeah. yeah. Uh, actually, dropped five of ours. Added one of her own, and then our listeners voted. Uh, mostly, I'm happy to report that Bobby Knight did not make oh, the Mount thank Rushmore. Goodness. Goodness. Was Sarah very would be close. Insufferable. He was number five, but. He was edged out by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Pete Maravich, and then, not surprisingly, our top two vote getters were Pat Summit and John Wooden. So seems fair. That's a good Lord That intended. seems about right. Yeah. yeah. So thank you for voting. Uh, we'll probably be doing – we've got, obviously, a week off because of spring break. We have something else for the end of March. But I think we have another Mount Rushmore coming up early mm-hmm. in April. We'll be mm-hmm. talking about sports movies, so we'll be listening for that. But in the meantime, we've got another way that you can engage uh, with our show. Because we were talking about college basketball and it's mid-March, we thought we should probably do – a March Madness bracket. So we have set this up. It's at cbssports.com. So I'll read the URL. I know that's awkward, but you can find this at our Facebook page as well. But it's Bethel252.com. 
www.mayhem.cbssports.com. So we will enter. We're trying to get some of our live from AC Second Friends to enter, and we'd love to have listeners enter as well. Uh, What we're going to do is you can put in kind of one straight bracket, take your best shot, and then also one perhaps. What should we have people indicate on their bracket name to indicate that that's their bracket of integrity? That's their official. Well, that one I think should just be your name. And then the second one, maybe in like parentheses or something, should have something else or should have a jokey kind of name. Because I always add a bracket if I can. Mm -hmm. That's the whichever has whichever school has the better political science department. And I'll do the same with history. And so people have systems like this. And so just find some way to indicate which is which. And we'll, we'll see how things go. Once we get back in late March, we'll update you kind of week by week, round by round, and announce the winner in April. See if we can get some swag for that. Uh, we'll see if we can A do A traveling that. trophy. Sam, we don't have any merch for the life. We have no second. budget, so no. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, after a break, we'll be right back to talk with Paul Putz about Sportianity. Can we rock? What's up, Doc? Can we rock? What's up, Doc? Can we rock? What's up, Doc? I'm the Hooper. Hooper, Hooper, Hooper. Protected by Viper. When I'm out the Hooper, you're better the cipher. In other words, you better make a fucking decision. Because I'm going to be a shack knife and cut you with position. Forget Tony Danza, I'm the boss. When it comes to money, I'm like Dick the Boss. Now who's the first pick me? Road is morning. Not a Christian late, no. Not a Lonzo morning. That's okay, not being braggadocious. Super Califragilistic, Shaq is allidocious. Because I got to go. This week in sports history. Cincinnati, Ohio, March 15th, 1869. A local baseball club called the Red Stockings reorganized as the first professional team in the history of the national pastime. Led by British immigrant Harry Wright, the Cincinnati Red Stockings become the first team to play games on the East and West Coasts, winning all 67 of them that year. College Park, Maryland, March 19, 1966. Starting five black players in the finals of the NCAA men's basketball tournament, Texas Western defeats an all-white Kentucky squad. It's the only time legendary coach Adolph Rupp loses an NCAA championship game. Los Angeles, California, March 23, 1994. Kings forward Wayne Gretzky scores his 802nd career goal, surpassing Gordie Howe. It's one of more than 60 NHL records that the Great One set during his 20 years in the league. Salt Lake City, Utah, March 26, 1979. Magic Johnson and Larry Bird face off in the highest-rated NCAA men's basketball championship game in history. Bird leads Indiana State with 19 points, but Johnson puts in 24 to carry Michigan State to its first title. It's all over! Michigan State University, national champions, 1979. They chant that cry on every campus in every sport. Everyone wants to be number one, but only one can make it. Larry Bird, a great star, congratulates the victors. Urban Johnson leads his Michigan State team to the final score, 75-64, the first ever national basketball championship for the Spartans of Michigan State. You've been listening to This Week in Sports History. Run, devil, run, the angels having fun, making winners out of sinners, better leave before it's done. All right, welcome back to the second segment of the 252. Chris had to step out. So Sam and I are here on phone talking with Paul Putz, who teaches U.S. history at Messiah College in lovely Grantham, Pennsylvania, or you might think of it as the greater Mechanicsburg metro area. Is that right, Paul? I forget how you actually That's do right. the address, right? Yes. Grantham so, is officially no more, actually. So oh, I'm sorry to hear that. 
Um, it's not so, incorporated anymore. So Greater Mechanicsburg is great. Perfect. So Messiah is uh, in some ways a very similar college to Bethel, and uh, Paul is teaching U.S. history there, including a race and sports class. Uh, and we'll probably come back to your dissertation research a little bit more, Paul, on Fellowship of Christian Athletes. But we always like to start by just asking kind of your own sports story. And I'm going to preface this by saying that you are probably the best athlete we have or ever will talk to on this podcast. You're certainly more of an athlete than Sam or I. Can you just tell us a little bit about your uh, sports story? <laughs> well, uh, the bar is very low if I'm the best athlete, uh, no, the low bar is our athletic competence, and you've, you've hurdled it quite, quite hurdled clearly. It. Right. Yeah, so my sports story, I was uh, born and raised in Nebraska, small town in Nebraska, and although Nebraska is obsessed with football, I ended up getting into basketball. So I was, I was a little bit of an outsider hmm. in my preferred sport, but I played basketball all, throughout high school. I ended up playing in college for a uh, small college ball up in uh, Omaha, Nebraska. So uh, my interest in sports, in terms of playing it, has been there from um, as long as I can remember. Um, How how would you describe your game as a college basketball player? Describe my game? I was was a very, 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 very poor man's Dirk Nowitzki. Ah, So I was kind of slow in plotting, but I shot fadeaway jumpers. Right. Well, you can make a living off that, I think. It's, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, you're pretty, I know you're being very modest, but you were fairly successful within the context you were playing in. Um, yes, within my context, I was. But then at a certain point, you become not just an athlete and a fan, you become a scholar of sports. So can you talk a little bit, I mean, was that something that happened in college? Was this, you were looking at grad school and you were looking for topics? How how did you become a historian of sports? Uh, yeah, that was a you know it's kind of a long meandering process, but it I guess it kind of began with a desire to be a coach. That's sort of how I got into education was uh, thinking, hey, I like playing basketball, maybe I can coach it in high school. And I thought, to my own experience, I thought, who, what, what do the coaches teach? Well, they teach social studies, and. Um, the, I, although I did have an interest in history, I, I you know, honestly, I, I got into wanting to be a high school teacher in large part because I thought this would be the easiest thing to teach where I could devote more of my time to coaching and less of it to the classroom. So uh, that, that got me into um, secondary education. I graduated with a degree in secondary education, landed a job at a high school in Omaha, Nebraska, and started teaching social studies, but the, the funny thing happened along the way, and I started being interested, really interested in history, and uh, to the point that I decided I didn't want to coach high school. I wanted to, you know, continue developing, maybe thinking about the possibility of getting into history as an as a academic profession at the college level. And so I, I got my master's in history while I was teaching high school and applied to, to graduate programs to see if that would be a, a possible career path. So, so yeah, sports got me into education, hmm. and then history sort of captured my imagination once I was, was in education. 
And then history leads you back to sports in a sense. So, I I mean, I guess one thing, I think I asked you this in a blog post once, but I'm going to ask it for listeners. Was it a difficult transition to go from being someone who participates in the moment of sports to being someone who stands back and studies them as a scholar? I mean, maybe a different way of asking, like, does it help or hinder you that you have this background as an athlete, as someone who wanted to coach? Does that give you insight? Does it uh, put you too close to it sometimes? Uh, how do you think about that relationship? It's complicated. Yeah, it's they're they're very different things, and in fact, there is a there is a distance as a scholar of sport um, that exists between you know studying it and then participating in it. Mm-hmm. Like as when when you're participating in sports, if you're a coach or a player, if, if even if you think about what what types of things you want to read. Right. Let's say that you're, you want to engage in intellectual pursuits. You want to read books. You, you always think in terms of how will this book that I'm reading help me become a better athlete or a better coach? It's mm-hmm. always a focus on, um, how do I bring back? How do I apply what I'm doing into my context of athletics and hopefully being a success in athletics? And writing about sports from a, with critical distance means Nothing I write will actually be helpful to an athlete's performance or a coach's performance more than likely. I mean, who knows? Maybe they find a nugget in there, but that's not at all what I'm trying to do. And so it's a, it's an entirely different mode of intellectual inquiry and knowledge and, um, uh, just a, a way of approaching sports that you, you really do have to step outside of it. So in that sense, there's a vast difference, but, I think the fact that I have played sports also gives me maybe a, a, a little bit of insight into the sort of culture that exists in locker rooms, into the um, the type of ideas that are prevalent in sports. I think it gives me a respect for the the seriousness with which we should treat sports as an intellectual endeavor. I think sometimes we, we um, can tend to see it as like an escapist, um, less rigorous, less demanding, at least in terms of the mind and the intellect, than other pursuits. And I think by being involved in sports, I came to see that sport actually does the job of intellectual formation. Hmm. It shapes the thoughts we think and the ideas that we articulate, not just our performances on the field or the court. And so I think it gave me um, a way of taking sport seriously from a critical perspective once I started thinking in that mode, that I wouldn't have had if I hadn't have played sports. Sure. And so um, one thing I should add that, you know, just partly to remind our listeners as much as anything is this whole podcast is a preview of a course on sports history that um, I'll be co-teaching next year. So, Paul, as you've taught courses on sports, like the one on race and sports that you have right now, do you often get student athletes um, uh, taking part? Are they are they drawn to that? Uh, do they experience some of the same tension that you just described is you know, maybe in a sense they thought it would be useful and they end up looking at sports uh, sports differently? Yes, for sure. I, I taught a class called The Meaning of Sports in American Life in the fall. And it was, you know, it was mostly it was mostly athletes and sports fans that signed up to take it thinking, I love sports. And so this will be, you know, this should be fun. I can mm. learn about this thing that I love. And I think I wanted to respect that in the context of the course, and, and it certainly what the course wasn't set up to, you know, take away your love of athletics. But at the same time, it was a course where we 
thought critically about what does sport mean and how how did it come to hold these different meanings? Um, how has sports been a, a played a role in some of the social inequalities and societal structures um, that might be problematic? Uh, how do we how do we think about those issues? So I think it it ended up challenging students, but I think it gave for a lot of them it, it allowed them to think of questions they hadn't thought of before and in a context that they were familiar with. Okay. So it, it is it is challenging to have students come into a sport class thinking they can, you know, learn all about the heroes and legends of athletic accomplishment and then to realize we're actually going to be thinking of other things. But it, 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 it provides a space, I think, in which you can push students to, to think in new directions. And that was my experience. My students um, really adapted to it and, and took to it, and I think we're able to, uh, for a lot of them, they held their love of sports. They didn't, you know, the class didn't take away, I think, the pleasure that they gained from watching sports or playing sports, but it allowed them to think in new ways about sports, too. Sure. Well, it's good to hear. That's That really describes our goals as well. Um, let, we might come back to the, the teaching you do, but let's talk a little bit about your writing. Uh, one place people can read some of your work is at a blog called Sportianity. So this is uh, sportianity.com, I think. Uh, and maybe we can just start with that word itself. I know this originates with a uh, 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 much-respected sports journalist named Frank DeFord, wrote a series in Sports Illustrated in 1976. So maybe let's just start there. What did he mean by sportianity? And maybe also, why was he writing about it in the mid-'70s? Sure. So he's, he, uh, Frank DeFord, I guess we'll start with what he, what he means by it. Um, he uses that term to to describe this evangelical Protestant subculture within sports. So he noticed in the mid-1970s that there were a lot of celebrity athletes, whether at the college level or playing professional sports, who were talking about Jesus a lot. They were publishing books where they talked about Jesus a lot. They were um, very conspicuous in their displays of religion. And DeFord is a Northeastern Episcopalian, uh, sort of a lapsed Episcopalian. Mm -hmm. And he's, this is a world that he's unfamiliar with. And so I think curiosity drove DeFord to try to investigate and explore, like, what, what is this, this, this subculture that, that seems to be so prevalent in sports? He comes up with the term sportianity to describe that world and, and the organizational infrastructure that is part of sportianity that DeFord looks at, it's defined by the fellowship of Christian athletes, athletes in action, pro-athletes outreach, baseball chapel. So there are a number of organizations that are actually embedded in sports that are promoting and developing and encouraging these expressions of piety that, that you know, DeFord noticed and realized, oh, I, I should, you know, start to explore what, what is this. Sure. If he were, I mean, I don't think Frank DeFord is alive anymore, but if he were to do a follow-up here in 2019, would he would he see something similar as he looked to college and pro sports in this country? Is Sporty Andy remain very similar? Has it changed over time? I think he would see a lot of similarities. Um, one of the main points that DeFord makes when he describes Sporty Andy is he sees this 
Christian subculture in sports, this evangelical subculture, he sees it as playing a mostly booster role. So in general, there's not there's not sort of a prophetic mode of of you know Christian based criticism of sports. Instead, these, these evangelical organizations they're mostly just trying to uh, get along as well as they can with the, the world of big time sports that they're embedded with. They don't speak out against, say, major ethical problems or ethical dilemmas that they might see. Instead, they focus on positive encouragement, helping athletes, you know, become their best and and uh, achieve as much as they're capable of, and help them have, you know, emotional wholeness through spiritual well-being. Mm-hmm. That's you know very individualistic approach to ministry that allows them to accept whatever the structures exist in sports and be okay with that and then just use the fame and celebrity and cultural impact of sports to try to promote the evangelical brand of religion. So it's, it, it, was, it was a mode, a uh, subculture that went along with sports, didn't challenge it. And I think DeFord would point to a very similar approach that we see in 2019 where athletes in action or pro athletes outreach or, or the FCA their their place in sports is maintained in a lot of ways because they're they're kind of nice for these organizations to have. They don't cause a whole lot of controversy. Um, now in the, our culture wars era, they certainly your Tim Tebow's will and and, so, and down south your football coaches that are, are praying with their teams. Um, you, you'll see that that kicked up uh, quite a bit, but they sort of just keep operating and, and have become embedded within the seasons and off seasons and locker rooms and the the rituals of sports and they, they've they've kind of established a home there um following a lot of the patterns that existed in the 1970s so i, I think he would a lot of his critiques he could apply into his description in a lot of ways uh, could apply as well uh, with with you know some some major exceptions like the growth of women's sport mm-hmm. that's something that in the 70s uh, Title IX had just been passed in 1972, which opened up athletic opportunities for women in high schools and colleges. DeFord's writing in 1976, mm-hmm. and so he hasn't really seen the growth of women's sports. Sure. So, um, well, so I actually want to come to one kind of break with that pattern in a second and talk about perhaps more prophetic modes of, um, I guess, sporting piety. But um, let's start with this notion of uh, a very individualistic faith, one that um, is about individual wholeness, maybe has opportunities for public witness. And you've used the word evangelical a couple of times. Um, does evangelical Christianity inherently incline more than other forms of Christianity, other religions, to this sportianity concept? Is there something about evangelicalism that lends itself especially well to this kind of sports piety? I think I think that's right. I think I think this one of the ways that it it that it is able to connect with sports is that evangelicalism or whatever it might be, yeah, whatever that is, it is so exactly whatever it is. It's so decentralized hmm. and entrepreneurial and willing to adapt. And there's no there is no pope of evangelicalism, and so um, it's a sort of nebulous world defined more by consumer habits and defined by cultural products that I think allows it to thrive in the context of sports, whereas, say, right, Catholic Church, 
sports has played a really important role for Catholics and has been a, a very uh, important meaning-making uh, site for Catholics. But Catholics have their own institutions outside of the structure of sports that they encourage athletes to go and get involved in if they want to be spiritually fed and fulfilled. So, so you know, for, for a Catholic athlete, um, there isn't like a replacement for the sacraments, right? Mm, you, you, mm-hmm. That's still central to the faith. Whereas with evangelicalism, there's a sense in which they've, they wouldn't, they certainly would not say we're, we're trying to replace church. In fact, they would try to encourage people to go to church and do those sorts of things. But, but ultimately the way it works is that they, they sort of bring the religious product to the athletes in the context of their sports setting. Mm-hmm. So they take it out of the structure of say, you know, of, of, of church that operates on a Sunday and they bring the Bible study into the, the locker room. They bring the chapel, the pregame chapel, you know, on Sunday to the locker room itself as well. And I think evangelicalism, it's decentralized entrepreneurial character allows it to bring its brand of religion into those contexts in mm-hmm. ways that other institutional and hierarchical uh, forms of religion, they aren't willing to do that because to do that would sacrifice the essence of, of their of view of faith. Sure. I mean, in some ways, this seems so pervasive now. Like, we don't blink an eye if we see a player pray at the end of a touchdown, right? Um, but if I remember, you wrote a piece about NFL chaplains right before the Super Bowl. And if I remember it right, there was, there was a time when coaches were very wary of this kind of piety, right? Inviting chaplains into a locker room and having Bible studies. And I, I even remember reading, I think, Dan Okren's book about uh, about kind of a day in the life of baseball and the concern about bringing Bible thumpers in <laughs> to the locker room and messing with, like, team chemistry. Is that, I mean, on the other side, is that true? Was there, has this been a change over time where coaches maybe themselves have become more public about their religiosity? They become, they actually see benefits to it? Has that been something we've seen since 60s, 70s, 80s? Yeah, I do think there has been a change. So certainly in the 60s and 70s, there was still quite a bit of anxiety from these sportianity uh, leaders about the sense that that religion made you soft. So there was there's certainly the connotation that if you if you do care, you know more about an eternal perspective, if you're more worried about your relationship with God um, than than what happens on the field, that that'll actually take away this intense drive, this intense will to win that's seen as necessary for success in elite athletics. And so a lot of, uh, a lot of the evangelical um, Christian athletes and coaches, they, they sort of went out of their way to emphasize that you know, we're winners <laughs> and we're, being a Christian actually helps us mm-hmm. to become winners. And it, 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 I think, pushed them to really focus on the on-the-field benefits of evangelical mm. faith as a way to try to win support from coaches who might be a little wary. So, um, and, you know, over time, I, I think even, you know, you take someone like Bill Belichick, by all accounts, never, never nothing I've read indicates that Bill Belichick, um, you know, it, certainly he's not public about his faith, mm. whatever his personal views are. And yet Belichick, he seems to think that this evangelical faith thing helps a team and so the patriots are one of the few organizations that have actually hired an evangelical chaplain to be a full-time staff member 
on their team. And this is, you know, it's Belichick. He's not out there proselytizing, <laughs> but he's thinking, yeah, this is, this probably helps us out a little bit. So over time, I think that's certainly, um, the, the evangelical sports ministries have successfully made the case that they don't hinder, necessarily hinder a team mm-hmm. from winning, but in fact, they can, they can provide certain benefits that, that will help a team. So the Patriots are kind of an interesting case that transitions to maybe the last thing I want to talk about, which is that at least the level of ownership, maybe coach, star player, you've actually got some ties to uh, Trump administration, to Republicans, but not all players uh, necessarily wanted to visit the Trump White House. And so let me go back to something you said earlier, which is that by and large, Sportianity is a kind of booster sort of combination of sports and Christianity. It doesn't have a prophetic edge or a prophetic mode to it. And yet one of my favorite things you've written, Paul, talked about the uh, maybe unexpected role of sports ministry in the take-a-knee movement in the NFL. And you wrote this for Religion and Politics back in 2017 and pointed out something I had, I had given no thought to, which is that uh, Colin Kaepernick, um, I think you mentioned Malcolm Jenkins, maybe Eric Reed was part of that, actually um, had backgrounds in often evangelical sports ministry, things like FCA, uh, a couple others you mentioned, uh, and that maybe that was not disconnected from their desire to use their positions to to dissent, to draw attention to racial injustice, to um, police brutality. So can you just, uh, maybe if people haven't read that, could you summarize um, what's the role of sports ministry in, in the take-a-knee movement in the NFL? Sure. Yeah, I think... So I think there's, you know, there's certainly the the first thing we should recognize is that, you know, within the black athletic community, there is a protest tradition outside of sports ministry, right? You have your Muhammad Ali, your Tommy Smith, your John Carlos. There's there's this long tradition of of black athletes using sports in this, you know, challenge to inequality or um, racism in American society. So that. That was, I think, recognized by anyone who was writing about Colin Kaepernick. They pointed that out, and, and rightly so. But, um, as, as, as you, you know, just referenced, when I looked at the athletes who were protesting along with Kaepernick, especially athletes like Eric Reed, or if we had someone like Malcolm Jenkins, the Philadelphia Eagles safety who raises his fist during the anthem, a lot of the athletes, they, had been in the past connected with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes or Athletes in Action, or they were currently connected with them, or they were even, when they talked about their protests, they were discussing the way faith led them to protest. Someone like Eric Reed is the best example of this. Eric Reed was the first player to join Kaepernick in his protests, to kneel with Kaepernick. Eric Reed has stood by Colin Kaepernick uh, throughout the whole controversy and, and all the travails Kaepernick has gone through. And Eric Reed, in an op-ed for the New York Times, cited scripture to discuss why he was kneeling. Um, and so even though you know, Kaepernick was involved in sports ministry movements before, he hasn't personally linked uh, that I've seen his kneeling with his faith. But the athletes around Kaepernick who, who bought into it, who caught on with it, um, they were constantly referencing scripture, citing scripture, talking about their faith. And I think, you know, looking, if we, if we step back and look at what sports ministry organizations encourage athletes to do, I think that for athletes, black athletes, it would make perfect sense to take sport as a platform to promote your faith mm-hmm. and 
one way of promoting your faith would be to take scripture, take the Bible, and to speak out against injustice where you see it. Mm-hmm. And having been taught and trained to do this, to see themselves as representatives of Christianity, to use the platform of sports to to proclaim their faith, this this step for a lot of black athletes would have seemed rather natural. And you know, you combine it with the history of black athlete protests as well. Sure. Uh, One so, of the athletes you uh, mentioned that's a local connection for us is Maya Moore, the basketball player. So in an earlier episode, yeah. we had just talked about the announcement that she was taking the year off from, among other things, uh, um, some of her uh, favorite causes, one of which is uh, funny against uh, unjust incarceration. I know that she often references scripture, faith, um, other Christian ministries as, as part of that. Um, maybe a last question for you, Paul, just to tie together a couple of things here. I mean, as you think about how maybe especially the student athletes in your class have responded to this, you're teaching in a, I guess I'd say a broadly evangelical setting at Messiah College. And I assume a lot of your student athletes um, are themselves evangelical Christians. Did As they encounter some of this, do you get the sense they feel conflicted, uh, convicted, torn upset or do they feel affirmed and like how to because in many ways this holds up a mirror not just to our society but to ourselves like does this make them rethink the relationship of sports and religion do you ever get them writing about that you know in in my classes so far with with the sport history classes um i haven't i've done a little bit with sports ministries i haven't looked at it as, in, in as much detail we focused on sport history broadly and have looked at the way religion is connected with it, but we haven't analyzed as much the specific evangelical sports ministries. I just haven't had a class that does that. Um, what I have focused on quite a bit in the classes, I've had two now, one I'm teaching, one I have taught, what I have focused on quite a bit is race mm-hmm. and sport, and that was for, for a mostly white, as you say, predominantly sort of evangelical constituency, that was pretty challenging to some of my students. So in, in, in a class uh, in the fall, we read a book by Howard Bryant. Um, Howard Bryant is a journalist and writes quite a bit about sport and race, and he wrote a book essentially providing a historical perspective on the take-and-eat protests and the connections between black athletes and patriotism. Mm-hmm. And so we read the book in my class, and uh, it was it was a difficult read for a lot of my students. We had some tough conversations. It was one that some of my students really struggled with. Mm-hmm. Some of them felt it was anti-military. They felt it was anti-police. They were encountering ideas they hadn't encountered before, and and and, and I could tell that they were struggling. But it ended up being, for me, one of the the highlights of teaching. Um, uh, by the time we got done with the book, I gave them a little informal survey, you know, asked them to rate the book, and then and then I asked them, would you use this book again in a class like this? Like, if you were me, would you use this book again? Mm-hmm. And of my 35 students, 33 of them said, yes, I mm-hmm. would teach this book again. I would use this book again. Some of them even, they didn't rate it very highly. They didn't necessarily like the book. But other than, you know, one or two students, all of them said, this helped me think in new ways. This led to discussions that I was having with my roommate when I went back home um, outside of class. And and so I think 
the way that the topic of race especially applied in this white evangelical context led to new conversations. That that was really gratifying um, as a teacher to see how sport could open up those conversations. That is. That, no, that's actually very encouraging for us. I know that's the kind of conversation we're hoping to have next year. Well, Paul, thanks for giving us some of your time um, here at the uh, end of a week. Uh, listeners, if you want to learn more about Paul, read more, you can find his blog, sportianity.com. And he also has written for, again, I mentioned religion and politics, Christianity Today, Religion News Service. Just uh, type in Paul Putz and you'll find lots of interesting content online. We'll share some of it our live from AC Second Facebook page as well. So, Paul, thanks again for joining us. Hey, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Okay, we'll be right back. Hey, Sam Mulberry here for the Live from AC Second Network. If you're enjoying this show, you should check out the other podcasts on the network. Tweet Victory, our first micropod. Twitter can be a toxic place, but not when you're following the Twitterverse's newest, funniest feed, at Annie underscore Berglund, and Twitter's silentist account, at CWC Radio. We dive into the best of our tweets five minutes at a time. Election Shock Therapy, three Bethel political scientists and me, except for when I have a meeting, come together to break down what's happening in the political world. Subscribe to the Live from AC Second podcast network on your favorite app. Leave us a five-star review and jump into the conversation by emailing us at livefromacsecond at gmail.com or join our Facebook group. Okay, we have a little bit of time here in segment three. So before we get to three to see, uh, Chris and maybe Sam, do you want to talk about an event coming up that some of our listeners might be interested in attending? It's uh, Thursday, April 4th, right? That's right. Thursday, April 4th at 5 o'clock. We're inviting alumni from the political science department, the history department, and we're going to throw in the philosophy department just for fun sure. uh, to come join us at the Exchange, which is a very nice uh, pub venue in New Brighton, uh, Minnesota. For in Minnesota, like how far away are people coming for this field trip? <laughs> um, right, yeah, um, pilgrimage. Uh, but come join us at the Exchange at five o'clock on April fourth for pub trivia. This is uh, this is pub trivia for Bethel alums uh, in those three departments especially, but um, other alums are welcome as well. We'd love to see you there. So I think there's a registration form. You can. Uh, it is free, but you, you just do Google need to it. You'll find it. We yep. also did put it on our live from AC Second Facebook page. So we'd love to see you and yep. let us know if you're a listener. Please seek us out. Yeah, absolutely. All right, three to see for the coming weekend. I'm going to start this time uh, on this Saturday night. The Minnesota Opera. <laughs> stay with me. <laughs> okay. Host the world premiere of The Fix about the infamous Chicago White Sox team that conspired with gamblers to throw the 1919 World Series. Befitting a baseball opera debuting in Minnesota, the music is by a composer named Puckett, Joel Puckett. 
That's amazing. I can't top that, but I'll try. Uh, the 2019 Special Olympics Summer Games will be held in Abu Dhabi in the Emirates uh, on March 14th to the 21st. This will be the first time the Special Olympics will be held in the Middle East. Over 150 countries are slated to send uh, participants and athletes. It, does this happen every year? I thought it just kind of lined up with the Summer Game Olympiad. Is this actually an annual event? I believe it's an annual event. Oh, okay, I didn't realize All right, and I have on March 15th to 17th, the number two UCLA Bruins baseball team hosts a three-game set against defending national champion number three, Oregon State. Oregon State is led by junior catcher Adley Rauchman, who last year posted a 408, 505, 628 slash line and is the predicted number one pick in the June MLB draft. Okay, well, it's been a kind of a jam-packed episode. Again, we want to thank Paul Putz for taking the time to talk to us about especially evangelicalism and sports. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll put a few of his articles up on our show page. Again, you can find more about us at Live from AC Second on Facebook. And also I do a Wednesday page on my blog, pietoschoolman.com. Remember, do sign up for our March Madness Live from AC Second competition. Brackets are available at bethel252.mayhem.cbssports.com. Or again, go to the Facebook page. Anything else, guys? Chris, take us out. Well, on behalf of my colleagues here at um, Bethel University, make sure you make your free throws and go Royals. Royals.